Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and cliffhangers. <laughs> I'm your user experience cliffhanger, Roman Burkott. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how's it going? I'm doing well. I figure, you know, this is the end of the season. We have to have a cliffhanger, right? That's right. Season two cliffhanger. What's, what's it going to be? Is it uh, we discover a time portal to another UX universe, you know, where, you know, when, what, a universe where PM gets it? <laughs> Just kidding, PM people. Maybe we could uh, see what feature we killed in season one that came back from the dead. Oh, oh, that's yeah. a good, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Or maybe, you know, that successful product launch we had that we burned five seasons of narrative on only to find out it was just a dream the whole time and the company went out of business. I was just going to propose who shot JR. There you go. Go. <laughs> <laughs> we can recycle all those eighties, you know, uh, cliffhanger tropes and just bring them back. The eighties like came back, right? Like I, I think actually the nineties are back now. The eighties were back like a couple of years ago. Well, if all else fails, we'll add a kid. A mysterious kid that that wasn't in the season before that just like kind of shows up. Cousin Oliver is going to ruin our podcast. Cousin Oliver. <laughs> I see it's a Brady Bunch reference. I get it now. Very good. All right, yeah. I, that's all the cliffhangers I have. I don't. I don't know any other cliffhanger tropes. I'm sure there's lots of them that we're missing. Well, we'll see if one doesn't emerge through the course of the conversation. Okay, sounds good. The Great Resignation is coming. That's according to Professor Anthony Klotz of Texas A&M University, who has studied the exits of hundreds of workers, um, especially during the pandemic. So obviously, we'll link to this article that I'm talking about here, but it has made the rounds on LinkedIn for sure, probably Twitter as well, and generated quite a lot of conversation. So you may have even been exposed to to the notion either way that as the pandemic is receding as things are starting to open up. With it comes the pent-up demand in workers looking for new jobs and companies looking to replace workers. So (laughs) you have kind of a perfect storm of people wanting to change jobs and, and move around. And it has created a really energetic, maybe is uh, the right word. It's not a bad job market. Um, it's, it's great in a lot of ways. It's exciting. There's a lot of action, um, but uh, it's also so frothy that there's a ton of noise. So I know this because I happen to be presently looking for a job. I guess we just put that out there um, so that <laughs> my comments make sense. There you uh, go. But I'll, speaking for myself, uh, I'm getting you know a, a ton of people calling, um, but there's just there's so much demand. Um, for not just UX, for all kinds of roles um, that I you know, have imagined it from the other side of the table, from the recruiter side of the table. I don't think that they're intentionally not getting back to people as they ever have. It's simply, at some point, you're putting out fires, right? Uh, every team is demanding new talent to fill the, the headcount that they finally got approved. And so uh, basically, our, our staffing professionals are struggling to keep up. That's my assessment of what's going on in the market. I think I've seen a, an uptick of, you know, people 
targeting me through LinkedIn of saying, Hey, are you looking around for X, Y, and Z? And I think it's, it's been, it's been noticeably different than in the past. It's not just like these obviously really terrible emails that were (laughs) automatically generated that are pitching me on some sort of position that I'm completely not qualified to fill. Um, (laughs) Uh, because I, you know, I taught a CSS class in 2006 and now they want me to be a, you know, a, a full stack developer for some reason. I, I don't get that, but um, apparently uh, they're, they're, they're willing to hire. Um, but no, it, it's actually more higher quality targeted through LinkedIn. Hey, things that I might actually be interested in types of, of jobs, you know, some things that are in, you know, industries that I have a lot of experience in and stuff like that. So I've seen a definite uptake in the demand for new talent. Um, and I've seen a bit of the, you know, the, 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 the leaving of talent in mm-hmm. an organization that I've been in as well. Um, so it's, it's, I, I've definitely, you know, anecdotally have seen some of this uh, phenomenon that they're talking about in this Bloomberg article. Another article that we'll, that we'll link to is, uh, one by, um, Dan Saffer. Uh, if you don't know Dan Saffer, he's pretty well known in UX circles, uh, but formerly of Adaptive Path and Twitter and author of several books, speaker at many, many conferences, um, and pretty doggone funny. <laughs> he wrote an article on, um, on Medium. Is that still a thing? Medium. Uh, People still <laughs> write on Medium. Okay. And, you know, even after like the, the 32 business models that medium has been through, we're still writing on it. I do pay, I pay for content, right? I I actually, there's several, you know, like newsletters that I get from certain authors. Um, you know, I would subscribe to somebody on Substack and I subscribe to somebody, you know, some other independent, um, um, email newsletter newsletters, but there's mediums just never like been the thing that was like, Oh yeah, here's the place where, you know, I, I think they were trying to do what Substack has successfully done and mediums kind of just like sort of failed at it and been through a bunch of business models and hasn't been able to really, you know, figure out that business model where Substack has kind of, kind of figured it out. Um, anyway, I, I digress. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the Dan Saffer article was kind of a wake up call for me. Um, you know, somebody who's like pretty well known in the U S industry and pretty, you know, well regarded, and, you know, pretty advanced and, you know, done, done a lot of things and that worked at big companies, big, well-known companies like Twitter, mm-hmm. um, worked at one of the, you know, the premier UX agencies that kind of kickstarted all of, uh, you know, a lot of different UX and practices. Um, and he found himself in a situation where he had a hard time finding a job. That's fascinating to me. Um, and I, and and a little scary, honestly, you know, being somebody who's, you know, also getting towards the, the latter part of his career and, um, is like, wow, is this going to happen to me when I try to get my next position? I probably had some somewhat unrealistic expectations based off of the last three jobs that I've taken. I did not get any days off between. Like there was a need and, you know, basically as one job was wrapping up, the other one was ready to roll. And so I took zero days off and just went into the new role. And for years now, I've been thinking, yeah, next time I change jobs, I'm going to take some time off. Well, guess what? (laughs) I've had some time off, although it doesn't really count because when you're, when you're looking for, for work, you can't relax. You can't just chill. 
you got to put in the hours, uh, probably even more so than if you just had a regular job. Yeah. When that happens, you become um, uh, a marketing professional for yourself. (laughs) And that is a full-time job when you are in a position where it's like, oh, I don't have a... I don't have an infinite runway here of, of, you know, of, of income and and funds. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and you got, you know, so you have to figure out how to market yourself. So you put yourself in that right position. So Dan like walks through, you know, some, you know, some observations and things that he's sort of, you know, been focusing on and recommending um, to people Mm -hmm. uh, based upon his experiences of, you know, trying to find a position when you have 20 years of experience, in design. <laughs> um, yep. So like, I think his lesson number one isn't, is like actually really super smart. It's like, you know, always be applying. Um, so, you know, always kind of going out there and seeing what's out there and see where the opportunities are, I think is a, a super useful thing to do because not only is it keeps you in the market constantly, it keeps you aware of new opportunities constantly. And it also, you know, it, it forces you to sort of network and, and, and um, get your name out there and, and get some recognition from people. I know that I have, you know, I've, you know, talked to various companies over the last you know few years, even at the, my p- current position. And I have found that, you know, making those connections has been, you know, really useful. I, um, even, um, before I had this job, um, I applied and, you know, got offers from multiple places just recently that one of those companies that get, offered me a job and I turned them down for something else, contacted me two years later, say, Hey, we have that same position <laughs> opened again. Which are you interested? <laughs> so, you know, getting yourself out there and interviewing is, is not a bad thing. Even if you aren't necessarily looking for something right now, always be applying and always be interviewing, I think is a, is sort of a good set of activities to do, to engage in. Yeah. I think out of all the advice that, that he gives, plus, you know, I wanted to throw out a few suggestions of, of my own. Um, but I, I think if, if there's nothing else you take away from this show, uh, this episode, it's that always be applying. And I think that both applies to when you're not looking for a new role, you should still be aware and maybe entertaining conversations, uh, as people, you know, uh, reach out to you and, and so on. Um, but then when you are actively looking for a job, I've been guilty of this myself, um, taking my foot off the gas because, oh, this is looking real good. Right. I, I just had a killer interview. I, I nailed it. And, uh, clearly, you know, they can, they can, they were talking to me about how they see me fitting in, in this role. Um, and you know, the, the conversation was great and I got along great with the hiring manager and then nothing. <laughs> yep. So, uh, if, if nothing else, make sure that you always be applying. What I would add to that was also don't stop fishing once you get the role. So you finally, you found a job you're starting. Now, this is a really critical time where you want to be 100% focused on snapping into this new role, getting acclimated, understanding you know, your new business model and who you're, who you're going to be working with and all that. But what I would say is uh, you know, th- there used to be this notion of the, the 90-day probationary period when you start a job. Some places, I think, even still have that. But 
they don't really talk about it here in California because it's at will employment. But the notion remains that there's that 90 day, give or take period where if you just end up not uh, fit working out for the role that they would, you know, thank you for your time and, and send you on your way. I would argue that that goes both ways. So in my career, I have on three occasions accepted jobs that on my first day were substantially not the job that I had taken. (laughs) (laughs) And all three times I made the mistake of sticking around thinking, "Mm, well, I know it's not exactly what we talked about, but you know, there's still a lot to like here. Essentially, you're you're emotionally invested in that role by the time that you say yes and you finally don't have to be looking anymore. It's, you know, it's a relief. And so you want things to work. But again, if you still at least had some feelers out in the market during that kind of, you know, what's supposed to be a honeymoon period and you start seeing red flags, well, maybe that gives you a leg up on moving out uh, into something that ends up being a better fit. I would also say that within like that three months or so, if you were to, you know, bounce out of a job, I don't think anybody's going to give you a hard time about that on your resume. Like, Oh, are you a job hopper? Like, (laughs) I I don't know that you'd even necessarily need to list the, the failed role on, on your resume to begin with. Yeah, I think I, and you know, it depends on your comfort level. I think it's, it's perfectly fine to do that. You know, if if you have a whole string of job hopping on your resume, that's one thing, Mm -hmm. but if you have one instance of it and when it comes up in an interview, say, Hey, I took the role because it was presented as one thing. When I got there, it turned out to be another, and that's not what I want was looking for. And I decided to, 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 to find something else. I think that's absolutely a, a completely, you know, a, a, a perfectly cromulent response to a, you know, a question about your, your, you know, being somewhere at three months and if it didn't work out. <laughs> cromulent. Well, well done. <laughs> I love that word. I don't know. Ever since <laughs> that Simpsons episode a long time ago. If if you happen to interact with me on LinkedIn uh, for any length of time, you will have seen me fist bumping Jared Spool every time he posts an article saying that employers need to quit demanding a portfolio from designers before they even so much as talk to them. And then there's reality. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because nobody's listening to Jared Spool except for like a very small percentage of the world. And the rest of them are like, so where's your portfolio? Yep. Where, where's your online portfolio where you share all of your past employers, uh, intellectual property up on the Mm -hmm. web for anybody to come and peruse. (laughs) Where's that? That's exactly right. So we all have good reasons for not keeping an online portfolio, um, which include sensitive information from previous employers, um, as well as, uh, simply, not necessarily carving out the time and the course of every everyday life to record the the history of a project that we've just accomplished. You know, projects tend to just kind of bleed one into the next. I I, I can't really think of too many projects that were just like, okay, and now we are done. <laughs> they just there's never been that downtime where I felt like, oh, this is a great time to update my portfolio. Uh, unless, of course, I was unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have lots of time to do that. 
<laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go back to my um my uh, you know marketing professional comment from earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, while I totally agree with the sentiment that it's ridiculous for companies to require a portfolio before they even so much as talk to you, the reality on the ground is that you need a portfolio. And if you just think about the, the general hiring process, it starts with a recruiter who isn't necessarily well-versed on your profession this person may have some idea if they've worked with you know the the team that you're going to be working on uh, to any extent, but generally speaking, they're not experts, and so being the very first gatekeeper, save for possibly a, a, an automated talent system <laughs> that's slurping in resumes and computer deciding <laughs> who's a good fit or not. Aside from the talent system, the the recruiter is really your first gatekeeper towards getting that role. And that person not being well-versed in the nuance of human-centered design um, is probably just going to want to see a portfolio with some pretty pictures in it. So you must have a portfolio. Sometimes the the people hiring you, too, are also just looking for pretty pictures with in a portfolio, too. Um, and then, you know, that's the, not the place you want to work if you're, you know, not a visual designer. Yeah, that, that, that's true too. Even, uh, for roles where, uh, pretty pictures is not what you produce is not your primary deliverable. Um, there still tends to be an expectation that you're going to have pretty pictures and a, a handsome slide deck to put in front of people. Um, so I won't bag on about this, you know, too long, but just be aware that you do need to have a portfolio and the best time to make a portfolio is before you need it. And uh, ideally, you would just be updating it on an ongoing basis between projects. I think there's, you know, other, you know, having the portfolio ready is, you know, one thing or, you know, being able to produce one, you know, quickly. I think the other part is like the expectation that it's online on a, you know, a dot-com site that anybody can come to at any time. I think that is an unrealistic expectation. And I've gotten around that because I don't have that because most of the stuff that I've worked on, you know, I signed a piece of paper at one point saying, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to share this with, you know, other people outside of work. Right. And so I want to continue to honor that because, you know, I'm an honorable guy. And, um, so one of the ways that I've sort of, you know, gotten around that, um, is not put it online, but say, Hey, I'm happy to share examples of work in a one-to-one presentation, you know, in a, a zoom or whatever, where I can walk you through some projects that I did in the past and, 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 you know, talk about what it was and how we did it and show you some stuff, but I can't put that online because I've signed, you know, you know, uh, you know, agreements in the past of my past employers that I wouldn't do something like that. And I've generally, that's been an okay compromise for most of the people that I've talked to. Right. And I think it's also gives you control as the designer and the interviewee to control the conversation and control the situation when you go into that so that it's not just them looking at pretty pictures. It's you telling the story about what you did and how the project went and what value you added and what were the outcomes and being able to, you know, control that narrative as opposed to somebody seeing something and making a bunch of assumptions and headcanon about what they saw, um, as opposed mm-hmm. to, you know, what you really wanted to, to communicate. 
One point that Dan uh, made in the article about your portfolio that kind of surprised me was that uh, he said basically that you need animation that or that animation makes the portfolio much more effective. And to me, that was a little surprising because for a long time, online meetings lacked the the bandwidth and really even, I guess, the attention level to successfully do animations in your in your presentations that basically all that you know fussy animation that you had put in in keynote um came out at like a a, a six frames per second animation through the uh, through the presentation pipe and ultimately it wasn't very effective um but i i suppose the world has changed quite a bit and now that uh you know pretty much everybody has had to adapt to to working through uh, their internet connection, I, I guess most of the time now you can more safely assume that those animations will will work and will pay off. Whereas I know I always tried to keep my portfolio uh, as low tech as possible, just knowing that what can go wrong will. Right, and there's also the fact that you're you know you're also supposed to tailor your you know some of your stuff to you know who you're applying for and if you have to make a new animation and thing about um <laughs> for every every you know place you're applying for then that's going to be a lot of overhead but um he talks about animations and movies is better than static images so i'm wondering you know making your presentation more interesting to see things in action i think you know maybe is it walking you know somebody actually clicking through a ui just so they can see what happens as opposed to just static mockups of it? Or is it, you know, sort of the, hey, it's the TikTok generation and you have to like sit here and, you know, do something clever and funny in a video um, while talking about the the work that you were doing? <laughs> I, I take that to mean, um, you know, like Figma makes it dead simple to record the prototype that you're clicking through. So I imagine a lot of those kinds of uh, little video snippets would play pretty well in a, a presentation so that instead of just a picture of the interface with, you know, dots and arrows saying, you know, if you click here, then it takes you there. Maybe having a little video clip of it actually happening would be mm-hmm. a little more engaging. Um, but again, that, that was a little surprising to me because I guess I still have that that old school mentality of if you put a bunch of video files in your keynote or your PowerPoint, the links are going to break and <laughs> you know your connection is going to be too shabby and it's just not going to travel through the pipe anyway. So has anybody done their portfolio on a TikTok? I think that'd be amazing. And <laughs> depending on like, you know, who the, how young the hiring manager is, that might just be the ticket that gets your foot in the door. But I think it may be kind of weird for like the 48 year old uh, designer um, having his portfolio on a TikTok account. It would be weird, but I think maybe it, may, it, it might be something you can consider. Right. The, the entire presentation is filmed at arm's length on my front facing camera phone <laughs> and doing dances from, you know, the waist up. Well, I think you've accidentally stumbled into, it was another one of Dan's points, uh, but he, he brings up the point that, that ageism is real in tech. He says in tech, I think that's just basically 
everywhere. Well, you're in a protective class if you're over 40. <laughs> no, it's not 40, is it? Yes, it is. It is. <laughs> I'm a senior citizen. Over, over, it's not, <laughs> I didn't say you were like an ARRP member. That's 55. Well, I just, I, I didn't know that 40 was any kind of cutoff because I happened to be Roman Burcott at hotmail.com years old. Yeah, you should probably, that, that that's probably bad. <laughs> no numbers, no special characters. If you've got an AOL.com email account, yeah, you're probably old. <laughs> well, you know, uh, that's a good point. There was, uh, you know, a phase not too long ago where people were being encouraged to update their resumes to get rid of legacy email system accounts. So just because you've been using your AOL account for, you know, 10 years or however long to, to do job applications and handle your personal business. Um, there was a certain sense that on your resume, it's not a good look, especially in the modern age of, uh, working remotely in the pandemic. Can you imagine trying to get on your zoom calls, you know, <laughs> you've got mail. Well, it's interesting because Dan actually addresses that in, you know, the ageism in, ageism in tech is real lesson. Um, he talks about, you know, some people and he did the same thing. The tricks where you people refer to 40 lopping off 10 years of work and college graduation dates from their resumes and LinkedIn. So that doesn't look like they, you know, have been working since 1989. Um, and I. I'm lucky because I kind of naturally just fell into that because the first 10 years of my career was in something completely different. And mm -hmm. I went back to school and started a new career. And now it looks like um, I'm 10 years younger than I am on my, <laughs> on my resume, just because it's like, I'm like looking for design jobs. I'm not going to put like the, 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 the 10, the five years I did at that catering place in Indianapolis and right. the two years that I worked at the Kennedy center as a chef and, you know, and all that stuff. Cause it's, it's not relevant. So I don't put it on there, but I do put, you know, I got my master's degree in 2005 and, or yeah. And then, you know, then I worked, I started working in design 2004 and, and so forward. And it looks like I'm 10 years younger than I am. And I'm not even trying to like be deceitful there. I'm just like, Oh, well, no, this stuff's relevant. Right. You should only put relevant experience on there anyway, but right. it is, it is a, a chilling point to read. You know, one thing I wanted to add to the conversation is that designers as change agents are going to need to be prepared to build culture in these companies that are in the process right now of trying to redefine themselves in this new digital first way of working that companies that were strictly in person and didn't believe in remote work at all that were suddenly forced into that world and now have the option to go back they're going to really be struggling with their cultural norms it's not going to be just a seamless transition much like the transition to remote work was not seamless i don't think anybody except for maybe <laughs> the remote first companies uh or remote first positions like mine. Right. Companies that were already <laughs> doing it, they seem to fare a little better. But for the most part, companies in general that had on-site staff had to figure it out and usually didn't go all that smoothly. You know, we all have success stories that we've, we've heard about. But 
you, you'll take your lumps trying to make a transformation that big, that fast in like fashion, as we start going back to the office, you know, there's going to be the, the extroverts that say, I can't wait to be back in the office in the conference room so we can high five and hug each other. So whose, whose point of view prevails in that kind of situation? Uh, should we be going back into offices? Should we be, uh, should we all be taking, you know, uh, working remotely as more of the, the default option? And then maybe you go to an office instead of it kind of being the inverse of that. Yeah, I think that's what I thought was interesting about that, the Bloomberg um, article. It kind of had this subtext of a bunch of people are going to like get forced to go back to work and they're going to be like, nah, I don't think I, I think I want to just work from home. I don't want to go back into an office anymore. And that being an impetus for looking for something new and people leaving because of it. And they even said, um, you shouldn't leave a job right away because, you know, they're demanding everybody go back into the office because they there might be backlash when that happens and then all their best people leave and they end up rethinking you know that oh everybody should be in the in the in the office so now that i've like worked from home full time and haven't gone to an office i have no desire to get in a car and spend you know an hour plus a day you know going back and forth and and you know wasting that time in where i could be like you know being productive or spending time with my family or doing other you know productive things that i could be doing it's super convenient to like i, I just bought a house last year and there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets that has to be done and i got contractors coming over mm-hmm. and like i don't it's like i'm just at home and it's like yeah you can come in on tuesday i'll be here right it's like right. you know it, there's so many convenience things it's like i'm not you know, I'm not burning fossil fuels. I'm not, you know, spending time in being, you know, angry in traffic because, you know, <laughs> there's this one spot where if like one car breaks down, like it backs up traffic for miles. All mm-hmm. it's just all that crap is like gone. And there's just a lot less stress around that. And so I'm really enjoying that. And um I think that there are jobs that are definitely can be done remotely. A lot of the knowledge work that we do obviously can, I think mm-hmm. can be done remotely. Um, and I think there's probably a couple different um, profiles of companies. There's companies where the senior management um, because of their experiences and their belief systems saying that people can't be as productive, you know, away as they can be in um, you know, if they all work in the in office together and um, for one reason or another, the past year has not changed that belief system for them. And so they're going to force everybody to do it. And then I think there's other companies that are looking at this and say, look how much money we could save by not having people come to these expensive offices and, um, and, you know, having people travel, you know, all over the, the, the country and the world on all this travel that we didn't have to pay for last year. And, that was a lot of, a lot of money. And we, you know, we, we, that hit our bottom line pretty in a pretty positive way. I think there's going to be a lot of rethinking of that. I mean, even in my situation, the place where I'm working, um, they had already plans, um, plans to move from one set of offices in the same, um, the same town or the same, you know, area into this other set of offices, literally like across the street. Right. Um, but now they were doing that transition. They totally, you know, redesigned how they were impl- you know, implementing that new office space. And it's a lot more hoteling space. Now they actually, they obviously have 
you know, some people that are, you know, they have to come in because of the nature of our work, you know, they have to be on premise to do some things. Right. And so there's, right. um, there's been a handful of people that have always been, they've been on premise, you know, the, the entire time with, you know, the proper COVID protocols and things like that. Um, but as they, as we get more people coming back to work on a regular basis, more, a lot bigger percentage of the, our office space is is going to be dedicated to flexible space and flexible um, desks, um, hoteling and and all that, rather than dedicated desks. The, the the percentage of dedicated desks is going to be way less than it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, there's going to be people who do want to go back to the office. And actually, there's a zillion good reasons for that too. Even if it's just you know, oh, I already had to drive my kid to school that was close to the office. I might as well just go into the office because I got to pick the kid up from school too. And, you know, um, or for that matter, I have a a home environment that's not great for trying to have (laughs) focused, concentrated meetings. So there's, there's lots of reasons why you might want to be in an office as well. But I do think the, the default way of working is going to have to be digital first, that you're going to have to just plan for most people, if not everybody, not being in the conference room with you and learning how to be effective with that. And so I think it's going to fall on designers, design oriented people um, to make those transitions to help lead other people through, because frankly, that's a, uh, that's an evolution we were having to make even before the pandemic hit. Yeah. And I think you're going to get that. um, One of the nice things about the pandemic and being forced into the remote work is everybody has that same experience. Everybody's remote. Everybody has to deal with the Zoom meetings and being remote and, and, and interacting, you know, the way we interact in remote situations. And then you have this dynamic of people who are co-located and the people that are remote. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, and we've talked about this before, how problematic that is because you don't get the same experience. You don't get the same, you know, serendipitous conversations. You get left out of decision making because the, some a decision got made when you weren't on a call somewhere, and there, right. and but people were in the same place, and that never got communicated out. So you you end up getting to a lot of those same problems that we had before of like, oh, these are the people that you know want to go in the office. These are the people that don't, and now we have all those same problems of co-located teams versus you know remote teams. Another interesting sort of angle is like how many, like how many inquiries do you juggle at a time? Right. Mm-hmm. Like I noticed that when I was last looking for work, I got to the point where I started, you know, you told about, talked about, you know, taking the pedal off the gas a little bit, you know, because you mm-hmm. got to the point where you thought, Oh, this is the, the, you know, they're, they're talking about me, you know, envision me in this role and stuff. And things are looking pretty good. On the other side of that is like, you get to the point where it's like, you can't juggle this many balls at the same time. Right. And it's like, you know, with, with interviews and follow-up interviews and interviewing with, you know, the, you know, behavioral interviews and, you know, interviews with other stakeholders. And, and then you do that with like, you know, four different companies at a time, five different companies at a time, you get to the point where you can't keep, you can't keep it straight. Right. You know what you're doing and who you're talking to and why you're talking to them and, and, you know, it, so I think there's actually a limit to the number of sort of, you know, uh, job inquiries and interview processes you can juggle at, at a single time. And so I found myself sort of pulling on the, put it on the brakes, not because I thought one was going to pan out, but I just couldn't handle that many. 
um, inquiries at the same time. Yeah, that's a great point because you don't want to have that embarrassing situation where you know you, you're thinking about one conversation you had um, with with one company, but happened to also be interviewing with a very similar company <laughs> with a, you know similar role and similar great team, and be like, oh, I, I, I enjoyed talking to so and so. Like that, that person doesn't work here, <laughs> but they do work at our competitor. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that could that could be embarrassing. Yeah, so it's like. You have to, so like, then there's like little cues that you pick up when you're, you know, you know, know, like you have, you talk to this one person at this one company and just like, they said one thing and it's like, yeah, that seems like kind of a red flag. And then you talk to these other four companies and they seem like more promising. And then you end up, you know, maybe doing a little less effort in that one where they had the red flag and, you know, more effort in the ones that you had, the four other ones were, that were more promising. So it's, and you just kind of have to feel out the process and at least what I do, you know, I, you know, try to take as good a note on each one as I can. Mm-hmm. But um, at some point, you know, you can only juggle so many balls. If the company that you're uh, interviewing at is thoughtful, if the team that you're looking at is thoughtful, there's a good chance that it, it's going to take several weeks, just best case scenario. Then when you add to that, the froth of, just all this movement in the market and with, you know, the internal recruiter being totally snowed under and trying to also, you know, hire engineers and HR people and, you know, fill all these roles. Um, it, it's going to take time. So my point is that you have to be patient you have to expect possibly, or even probably a longer time to, um, lock in a role than you might otherwise have. So you got to be patient. But I would say, don't be too patient. So if you're if you're talking to a company, talking to a team, and they are communicating with you, and they are explaining, perhaps you know why the situation is what it is. Oh, you know, so and so, you know, was on leave, or um, you know, we had whatever the situation was, uh, <laughs> all all hands meetings that we had to prepare for. Um, those are basically if they're giving you a good reason for why it's taking them time, that's fine. But there's also totally the chance that they're just jerking you around. And so you have to do what you can to distinguish the difference. So I would say, you know, plan for, plan for a long, uh, job hunt, uh, be ready to wait it out. Um, but don't tolerate, uh, bad treatment as a candidate because generally that's reflective of what it's going to be like to work there. Um, you also have to, to be careful not to like create too much head cannon about what's going on or why they haven't called you or you know, why it's taking so long. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like you said, just, it's just the process takes long and like maybe priorities change or they put something off or some, you know, something happened internally. Right. And this is all stuff that you are, it's completely opaque to you. Right. And um, yeah. I, I've seen people like, you know, end up creating this head cannon about why, they were, you know, weren't selected or why they're being, you know, pushed off. And, um, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, the recruiting should have the courtesy of letting you know what's going on. Um, and they don't always do that. And that's not always indicative of the organization. It could just be indicative of the 
recruiter and the, mm-hmm. you know the, the recruiter that 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 design team is stuck with. Um, so you can't always like say, oh well, because the, this recruiter was bad, that that means that you know working for this design team is going to be bad. That that's not always the case, but it could be you know signs of an organ of a dysfunctional organization, but not all the time, right? So I, I would like try to not put all your eggs in that basket, but um, you know you just have to like take all the signals that you get, you know, from each of these organization and you know, make a determination as much as you can based upon those signals that you get and, you know, and move forward with that. Cause like you might have talked to a, a bad recruiter, but you know, the hiring manager, which is actually the more important person, right? Um, right. because that's the person that you're actually going to be probably working for or, or reporting to. Um, you pay a lot of attention to how that person treats you and how that person communicates with you and how that person follows up with you, because that's the person you're going to be working for not necessarily that recruiter who may be dropping the ball. So make sure you're, you're, you're keeping that straight because um, you're going to work for that, that hiring, per, the hiring manager, not the recruiter. If you are talking to your, to your, your possible future boss and you are clicking and they're, you know, saying the things that, that, that are important to you, that you value is part of their philosophy. And you, you take that and compare it to, you know, somebody else that may, maybe a more exciting opportunity because it's a big name company, but you know, you have less, you know, affinity to that person that you might be working for. Always go for the better boss a hundred percent of the time, because the better boss is going to be a better person to work for. You're going to be happier in the long run, even if it's not, you know, the, the hundred percent perfect you know, position or doesn't have that big name, having a great boss, there, there's not enough that can be said about, you know, being hired in and, and working for somebody great, having a good boss that is supportive and allows you to, you know, spread your wings and do things and, and is there to, to coach and mentor you and shield you from some of the, you know, the, the stuff from above. It's also one of those things that could be a little tricky to ferret out and the interview, same thing, you know, we're, we're trying to make the best impression on each other. Um, when you, when you talk to the team, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of the hiring process that I went through, uh, talk interview with a hiring manager and you know, that that's one conversation. And then, you know, usually, uh, one or two or a few interviews with various team members trying to get a read back on, <laughs> on the potential boss, you know, that, that can be a real hard one to get people to to level with you about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a, it's a tricky needle to thread, but I, I totally agree that um, you, you should choose, choose your boss over your job because yep. that's the person you're going to have to wake up to every morning. <laughs> and I just, I just approach it like this, ask them straight up. Like I, you know, ask the, the person that's going to hire me is like, what would somebody say about you as a boss and uh, how, you know what what type of boss you are and then you ask that same question to the people that report to them if you get that opportunity if they're pretty well aligned then that that that's pretty good if you know you see some striking differences then that those are red flags <laughs> good point when you when you ask people you know, so what's it like to work for so and so and their eyebrows go real high <laughs> like a, oh Gosh, it's, it's swell. <laughs> so obviously they're not going to say anything bad, right? But Yep. You can well, tell. Yeah. If, you, if you straight up and straight up ask that question, you can tell. Yeah. A lot of the time. Will Roman find a job? 
Will Larry come up with the stuff designers love? Find out next season <laughs> with our thrilling conclusion. UX Like Us, season three. Worst cliffhanger ever. <laughs> if you found this show useful, usable, and desirable, please share a quick review in iTunes or maybe Spotify. Maybe you're listening on Spotify these days. That's a thing. Or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, the reviews help people find the show, and we appreciate your help. And remember that UX Like Us is your podcast. Sometimes we have you on here. That's it, right. It's happened before. It happened a few times. Maybe maybe you'll be on the next time. And you know, that maybe that's the cliffhanger. We, we, maybe it's you who are the guest on UX Like Us. A special guest, you. Follow us on Twitter, UX Like Us, and let us know what you would like to hear on the show and what you're talking about in your practice. So I am Larry King at LA King on Twitter and Roman is Superman. And thank you for listening. See you next season.